This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. This can be found on page 1692 of your Pew Bibles. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. 
But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and, Peter, and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Martha, for bringing that word this morning. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open uh, this morning so that we can refer to the text now and then. Um, also, just a great witness to our next generations how to use our Bibles and, and follow along with God's word. Last week, we began a, a new series on the book of Acts. We looked at the ascension of Christ, and today we look at the pouring out of his spirit on Pentecost, and we'll continue to work our way through the book of Acts. And so I encourage you to read in your personal devotions um, <clears throat> through the book as well as we, uh, as we go through this series. Friends, in, in Christ, in our last uh, series <clears throat> um, from this pulpit on the different generations that make up the church, we talked uh, quite a bit about the impact of technology and uh, things like social media, that, uh, that the impact that those things have upon us. And, and maybe it's just because of that that my antenna are up right now, but it seems like so many different authors are, are writing about that very subject. For example, uh, Tish Warren is in the middle of a, of a series of columns on that subject, technology and social media. And last Sunday, she referenced uh, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. And uh, what Jonathan basically says is that people within his field, but also just Americans in general, when new technologies come along, we've sort of adopted this idea that whatever it is, we're early adopters. We're on board. And we kind of have this idea that technology itself is, is neutral. It can be used for good, it can be used for bad, but it's generally neutral and so we don't want to be Luddites, we don't want to, you know, 
um, poo-poo new things that come along. And so everything that comes along in the technological world should be embraced with excitement and optimism. So we pretty much just take everything on. But then he goes on to say, when things take a turn for the worst, in other words, when we find that there are downsides to these technologies, that there are negative effects, you would think that we would just change. We would change our patterns in life. We would change our practices. We would turn off some of our social media, things like that. But he says that's not what happens. What happens instead is we've adopted sort of this technological fatalism in which we're numbed. We're paralyzed by it. We just don't know what to do. We can't act and do something. In fact, these things are just viewed sort of as inevitable and unstoppable. For instance, most Americans now, he says, are aware that study after study shows that social media is harmful to us, especially to our young people, and yet, he says, we feel, we feel trapped. We feel like there's nothing we can do, like the genie is now out of the bottle and there's no way we're ever going to get it back in, and so we're not even going to try. Now, what does this have to do with Pentecost? Well, I think we have sort of a similar fatalistic reaction to our society's view of Christianity and the church. To be Christians today is often viewed by our society as to be backward thinking, out of touch, closed-minded, nothing to contribute to the national conversation, a bigot, and offensive in just just about every other way that you can imagine. And our response, it seems, is is becoming one in which we just sort of say, okay, I, I guess that's the way it is. People aren't going to change their minds, and so I'll just keep quiet and, and mind my own business. And we've become sort of fatalistic in our approach to how we are viewed and to how we might begin to influence the world around us. But I think Pentecost encourages a very different approach. As we saw last week, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to wait, to wait for the gift that was promised by his Father. This is what he said, For you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. The disciples were to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit and for the power of the Holy Spirit who would come upon them. And it's that power, friends, it's that power that I want to focus on with you a bit this morning. So let's think about this power of the Holy Spirit. The first thing I want us to see this morning and to understand is that this is the power to witness It's the power to witness. Now that word power in the Greek um, comes or is the word dunamis. And it's uh, the word from which we get our word dynamite. And dynamite, that's a word that carries all sorts of connotations with it, right? 
They're loud, explosive, obtrusive connotations. And in our culture today, it's difficult to think of that word power in any other way. In any other way. But we need to see what it is that Jesus actually says here. He doesn't say that you'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit to be my rulers and my generals and my governors and my high priests. He didn't say you'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit to be my PhDs and my CEOs and my lieutenants in powerful quasi-political special interest groups. What he says is, you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. Now, a witness is someone whose power comes in the form of testimony. A witness uses not guns or knives or political influence. A witness uses words. Words. In fact, the word witness, of course, has a, has a passive sense to it, right? You've, you've seen something, you've observed something, but it also has an active sense. You, you testify to something. You tell others about what you have seen. And this is what we do in, in a courtroom, right? This word has sort of a forensic sense to it as well. We've seen something, we've heard something, we've been changed by something, and therefore we tell the story of what it is that we have seen, what it is that we've witnessed. No case moves through the courts without a witness to the events in question. And Jesus says that we will be his witnesses. That's what these tongues of fire are about, the tongues of fire. Have you ever, have you ever wondered where that image came from and why, why they're tongues of fire? I mean, why aren't they fingers of fire or thumbs of fire or dollops of fire? Why are they tongues of fire? Well, tongues have to do with words, right? They have to do with language. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to use our tongues, the power to tell a story, the power to use our words, the power to witness. And what story do we tell? What's the content of our witness? Well, we tell the very same story that Peter told. Chapter 2, verse 36, right? God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and and Christ. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's the story of what's hidden behind the clouds, the story of what's real but, but what not everyone sees. It's the story of how we made our, ourselves enemies of God by not accepting His Son, in fact, by killing His Son, but how God affirmed Jesus as the one, as his son, as the Messiah, as the Lord, by raising him up to the highest seat in all of the heavens. That's where he now reigns. That's the content of our witness, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus reigns, and he is in the process of making all things here on the earth just like they are now in heaven. And we know this, we know this story because of the testimony of the apostles and because we have the Holy Spirit himself in us 
testifying to our own hearts that Jesus is alive and he is well and he is reigning over all things, particularly our hearts and our lives. So the power of the Holy Spirit is the power to witness. It's the power to witness. Now, the power of words, the power of the Spirit, or the power to witness, that may sound rather unimpressive to you. More like firecrackers than, than dynamite, perhaps. But the story of Pentecost reveals more about this power. And we want to talk a little bit about that now. For one, this power is a power to cross cultures. It's a cross-cultural sort of power. If you look at verse 4, there we read, all of them, all of the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now just think about that for a moment. The disciples spoke, and when they did, they spoke in the language that was native to their listeners. And their listeners were Jews that had come to Jerusalem, that had gathered in Jerusalem from all different countries around the world for the Feast of Weeks. They came to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, which is one of the three Jewish festivals that all the Jews from wherever they were in the world were expected to travel to Jerusalem and celebrate that feast. So they're all gathered together in Jerusalem, and all of these people receive the message of the disciples in their native languages. In their native languages. Now, before we touch on that theme of language itself, I want you to see here how Luke describes this crowd. In verse 5, he says that these people are Jews from every nation under heaven. From every nation under heaven. Now we find that same theme in verse 2. There you read, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from where? Came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. I think what, what Luke is getting at here, friends, and the way that he writes and records this event is the issue of authority. The issue of authority. Who sits in the heavens? Who reigns from the heavens? What did we learn in chapter 1? It's Jesus. Jesus has taken his seat in the heavens. His throne is a throne that reigns over all nations. And friends, this has to do with the authority that Jesus has to do cross-cultural ministry. The authority is given to the Holy Spirit who implements the authority of heaven right here on the earth among us. And it's an authority to do cross-cultural ministry. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because the question of cross-cultural ministry always begins with that question of authority. Who gives you the right to impose your culture on mine? Who gives you the right to impose your beliefs and your ways, your practices on me? It's sort of the story of colonialism that we have to deal with again and again. 
What gives the English and the Spanish and the Dutch the right to impose their ways on, on nations in South America and Africa and the Middle East? What gives them that right? And friends, it's the very same question that was asked and often gets asked about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. What gave Israel the right to kick the Canaanites out of their own land? What gave them the authority and the right to do that? What gave them the right to impose their monotheistic religion on a culture of polytheism? What gives Israel the right to do that? And friends, that's a, that's a question that the Old Testament answers itself. What the Old Testament makes clear to us is that really Israel had no greater claim to the promised land than did the Canaanites. They had no greater claim to that land. Rather, that land belonged to whom? To Yahweh. That land belonged to God. And it's Yahweh who allows any peoples and any nations to live in his land. But it always comes with a condition. God allows you to live in that land as long as you obey Him and practice His ways and do things the way He wants them done. And if you don't do that, He reserves the right to expel you from your land, and it doesn't matter who you are. In fact, Israel herself could be expelled from the promised land, and we all know, in fact, that she was expelled from that land. Why? Because they were not obeying Yahweh, who was the rightful owner and ruler of that land in the first place. It's a question, friends, about authority. That's why one of the first things we read here in Acts 2 has to do with this question of who has been lifted up to heaven. Who is the rightful ruler over every nation here under the heavens? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is the only one who has the authority to impress his will and his way on all of the peoples and all of the nations. He has the authority to demand allegiance and worship from the peoples. And he likewise has the authority to send his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness to all of the nations. And the Holy Spirit is at the center of all of that. The Spirit that Jesus sends to his witnesses comes with authority, the authority of Christ, and also the power to overcome all all cultural barriers, all cultural barriers. And this is when we see that this issue is bigger than just language itself. It's bigger than language. If you've ever studied a, a foreign language, and I've, I've studied a, a sh my fair share of them and failed at many of them, um, but if you've ever studied a foreign language, you understand that that language is more than just words, right? It's more than definitions and vocab. Um, memorizing your vocab is going to help you go a long way in learning a new language. And yet, a language is, is still more than that. And that's why, 
That's why college professors take you on trips to, to the countries that, uh, you know, this, these languages originate from. But there's history to language, right? There's idiom, there's art. The very culture of the people is infused in the language itself. They're inseparable. For example, in Ukraine today, there are, there are Russian-speaking Ukrainians who have lived in the land for years and years and years. And yet, when they speak their Russian today in their own land, they are viewed initially with suspicion, no matter how long they've lived there. Because their words come with their culture, a culture that's historically been experienced as oppressive. Their words are connected to different power structures, to a power structure somewhere else in a different land. And it's almost impossible to pull those two things apart, to extract the culture from the language. When I was at Dork College, uh, many of my friends were, were Canadian. And, and it was quite clear that included in the way that they turned a phrase and used certain words, eh, like, like hockey, um, that there was a pride in them, a pride in their homeland that was north of the border. Words and culture came together as a package. It's just the way it was. And all this goes to say that if the Holy Spirit has the power to overcome even the barrier of language, then he can overcome any cultural barrier that gets raised to the gospel. He can overcome any cultural barrier. So what does that mean for us? Well, do you ever feel like you can't talk to your teenager about Jesus? Do you ever feel like you can't talk to your parents about Jesus? You ever feel like you can't talk to that postmodern millennial co-worker who doesn't even believe in absolute truth about Jesus? Do you ever feel like you can't talk to your neighbor who's, who's now going through cancer but she's pinned all of her hopes on, on the latest medical treatments and theories and technologies and she can't even think beyond, well, what if these medicines don't work? Do you ever feel like I can't talk to this person. We've got no common ground. Friends, the power of the Holy Spirit is activated in this world every time we bear witness to the living and the reigning Jesus. Every time we bear witness, that power of the Spirit is activated right here on this earth. One, one last thing on this idea of cross-cultural ministry and, or, yeah, cross-cultural ministry of the Spirit. Notice here that the miracle of, of language that takes place here in Acts 2, it's, it's a miracle that takes place in the speaker. It's not a miracle that happens to the listener. It's, it's the speaker, it's the disciple who speaks in other languages. It's the speaker, not the listener. And what that means, friends, is that the Holy Spirit is constantly at work in us, and his power is available to us as the witnesses, as the speakers. 
And so we have to pray that that power will actually transform our witness into words that can and will be heard. Words that can and will be heard. In other words, we're not exempted as witnesses from doing the hard work of learning what other people's lives, what their worlds, what their worldviews are like. We're not exempted from respecting our neighbors and loving our neighbors. This isn't like the Spirit says, well, just say whatever you want, and the Holy Spirit's going to transform it into words that are understood to be the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. If you act like a jerk at work 90% of the time, and then you try to speak about Jesus, don't expect the Holy Spirit to just transform your words. We have to pray for that power to transform us, the teller of the message. And that gets at our, our next point here. The third thing we recognize about the Spirit's power is that it's a power to transform the actual witness. Who is it that preaches this long sermon in Acts chapter 2? It's the Apostle Peter. Okay, not to be confused with other Peters around here preaching long sermons. (laughs) But it's the Apostle Peter. The same Peter who not too long ago, was cowering before a fire, before the crucifixion of his Lord, and now he's preaching fire on this Pentecost Sunday. Peter is filled with a boldness. And if you read his message, it's an incredibly bold message. He looks at all of his fellow Jews and he says, you put Jesus Christ to death. You killed God's Messiah. And then God exalted him to the highest place, raised him from the dead, and lifted him up to the heavens. Can you imagine that same Peter by the fire before Jesus' death speaking those words to the people around him? The Holy Spirit's power involves an inner transformation, it's a power to change us as witnesses which sort of removes, doesn't it, all of our lame attempts to worm our way out of being witnesses for Jesus Christ, doesn't it? I mean, think about, think about some of the excuses we make for why I can't tell people about Jesus. Well, I'm not very good with words, or, or I don't know my Bible as well as other people. We'll just leave that to the experts, Right? Ministers are better at that sort of thing. Or I'm an introvert. I've heard that one a lot. I've said it a few times, probably. Or maybe I'm just an arrogant jerk at work. We have all sorts of excuses for why we can't utter the words. Friends, with the Holy Spirit comes the power to transform not just the disciple Peter, but every one of us into people who are able to boldly speak the gospel. One last thing, finally. The power of the Holy Spirit is a power to cut to the heart. 
It's a power to cut to the heart. Look at verse 37. When the people heard Peter's message, they were cut to the heart. Now again, friends, I think when we hear these words that, well, our witness can cut to the heart, we sort of think, okay, big deal, right? Big deal. More firecrackers. So they were cut to the heart. Is that all that this dynamite can do? Impact a heart. What good is that? Sometimes I think that we as believers fall into our world's way of thinking, our world's way of looking at problems. We see a big problem, and we just want to fix it, and we want to fix it fast. End poverty, fix education, eradicate violence. And the power we want is the power to fix, to fix it all at once. And we really don't want the power to talk, the power to use words, the power to witness, not the power to change a heart. And if that's all the power that the Holy Spirit is going to give us, if that's all he's about, maybe we should just find some new power. I get that sentiment. In fact, I feel like that myself quite often. But friends, what we have to remember is that a word can cut to the heart and that means that a word can change anything. Someone once said that it's possible to control the body without controlling the heart. But to control the heart is also to control the body. To control the heart is also to control the body. In other words, it's the heart that controls everything that we do and everything that we say. Quick example. You probably have experienced this myself or yourselves, but sometimes my wife has to work virtually from home, right? And they don't trust that she's going to be using that time well, and so they tell her, well, you're on camera. We're watching everything that you do, so if you start goofing off, we're going to know right? It's the life of virtual work. Now, they wouldn't have to have that camera on if they could control her heart, would they? Because when you control someone's heart, you control everything that they do. Jesus, when he sits on the throne of our hearts in the same way that he sits on his throne in heaven, Jesus controls our hearts. And when he controls our hearts, he controls our bodies. He controls how we live. He controls everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. The Holy Spirit gives us words. The only thing that can cut to the heart, the only thing that can change a heart, that can change the hearts of our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our rulers, and cause them to submit their hearts and their lives and their actions and everything that they do to Jesus Christ. That, friends, is power. That is power. The power to change a heart is the power to change a world. But we have to speak. 
the words. If we don't speak the words, no one is cut to the heart and hearts don't change. But when we speak that Jesus is alive, that he reigns, he reigns in my heart and my life, he reigns in the hearts and lives of our church, then things begin to happen. Friends, are we really so powerless in the face of the world's problems today? No, we're not. Because all the power of the Holy Spirit becomes activated in this world when we bear witness to the living and the resurrected and the reigning Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would never stop pouring out your Spirit upon your church transforming us as witnesses so that we may boldly speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, that everyone who believes in him will be saved. Lord, give us the words, help us to speak, and Lord, when we speak and when we witness to Jesus, we pray that those who hear may be cut to the heart and may bend their knee before Jesus Christ as well, and your kingdom may come. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.